We're reading from Philippians chapter 3, all of chapter 3, to the first verse of chapter 4. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and, the, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason to confident, uh, confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you, th if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've obtained. attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, I now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set in earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, to the power, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. You may be seated. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together this morning as your people. And we know, Lord, that where we're gathered, you're in our midst, as we are your temple, Lord, and your Holy Spirit is in us. So we do pray, Lord, this morning that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, in our minds, as we look at your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help me as I bring your word to bear in our hearing today. That, Lord, you would work in my heart, in the hearts of the, of, of the hearers today. 
So Lord, we, we ask that you would do this work. We ask that you would be glorified. And we ask, Lord, that we would fix our eyes fully in, on you this morning. Amen. Okay, so this morning, we're only a few days away from, from the new year. And according to statistics, 45% of people will be making New Year's resolutions. Uh, this may be even you this morning as you're considering the new year. Many of us will be looking back at 2019 and considering what we may want to stop or, or start doing in 2020. It is typical to make uh, resolutions for things like weight, lo uh, weight loss or exercise, maybe quitting harmful habits such as smoking or better financial management or such like things. Others may be considering uh, Bible reading plans prayer guides or, or maybe a, a book list that you want to look at for 2020. As the fall ended and winter set in in 1722, Jonathan Edwards, the famous 18th century revivalist preacher at the age of 19, penned uh, not one but 70 lifelong resolutions. The 19-year-old Jonathan Edwards knew his weakness and was aware of the destructive nature of sin. He, so, he, so he resolved to make and keep certain resolutions in effort to live for the glory of God. Of his resolutions, Jonathan Edwards said this, We must go about making resolutions with genuine prayer and thorough study of God's word. Our resolutions must be in accord with God's word. Therefore, any resolution we make must necessarily allow us to fulfill all our particular callings in life. We must consider all the implications of our resolutions and be careful to make resolutions with others in mind. And if it means implementing new resolutions incrementally over time. His resolutions were not purposed on temporal goals and prizes that would so quickly fade away. No, not at all. They were purposed on his pursuit of Christ, on living for God's glory. His ultimate goal was to press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jonathan Edwards also had the good sense to pen these words prior to his resolutions. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will. For Christ's sake. If you haven't read Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, I certainly would commend them to you this morning. They cover everything from his overall life mission, good works, time management, relationships, suffering, character, and spiritual life. By way of example, one of his resolutions was to ask himself at the end of every day, every week, every month, and every year, he would ask himself wherein he could possibly in any respect have done better. The level of personal examination in his resolutions demonstrated his strong commitment to the passage that we're going to look at today. He was without a doubt forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He was pressing on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
For our time this morning, we will be looking at a very encouraging passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we are specifically looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. But before we look at the passage, I would like us to consider briefly the background of this passage in the letter to the Philippians. Now you will recall from the book of Acts in chapter 16, verses 12 to 40, the account given by Luke and how God providentially guided Paul to build this church in the Roman province of Philippi. The church plant was accompanied by remarkable events such as nighttime visions, riverside conversions, uh, the demon possessed were being delivered, and supernatural jailbreaks and remarkable conversions to Christ. The Great Commission from Jesus is recorded in Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20 was being fulfilled. Jesus who has all authority on heaven and earth gave the command to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And here we now have the first church in Europe. The Philippian church loved Paul and faithfully partnered with Paul by supporting the advance of the gospel which included financially supporting Paul's ministry. Now at the time of the writing of this letter uh, by Paul to the Philippians, he is now in prison in Rome and the Philippians are faithfully attending to his material and personal needs by sending Epaphroditus to visit him. If you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 verses uh, 3 to 6. So it's uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. It says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you, all making my prayers with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who has began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here we see the affection the uh, gratitude and the faith of and faithful prayers that Paul had for his church. If you look a little further, we'll just move to verses 9 to 11 in chapter 1. Here we see that Paul is specifically praying for. This is something we should also be praying for daily, for ourselves, and for each other. So that's the uh, same chapter, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here we see Paul's desire that his faithful, generous church would abound more and more in love, would continue to grow in love. You see, they're not perfect. Uh, they need to grow, they need to love, they need to love God more, and they need to love others more. And, and I would say, I think we could all agree that we also need to love God more, and we need to love others more. Consider in light of love, um, we're all very familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so I'm just going to read uh, verses 4 to 7 in chapter 13. It says, Love is patient, and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, irritable or resentful. And it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, 
hopes all things, and endures all things. So like us and all believers, they had not attained perfection. Turning a little further in Philippians, so chapter 1 still, verses 27 to 28, if we could look at that. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your proponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So here we see one of the driving themes in the letter to the Philippians, where Paul is appealing for unity among the believers. Now this is essential for the church so that they can stand firm in the faith of the gospel. And in so doing so, they will stay the course. They won't go off course. They will, they will together strive after the prize, the high calling of God, and pursue Christ above all and before all. Now Paul in his letters uses athletic metaphors it, it, to illustrate spiritual truths. So we see that quite commonly. And we see that clearly in this letter. One of the metaphors that is used in this letter is that of a runner. Now consider a mo for a moment a professional runner. Now John did a very good job this morning presenting that and I thought that was excellent. So the same idea, they are focused. They're not looking behind or to the side. They're putting all their energy into finishing the race, reaching the goal, laying aside anything that would hinder them from, from finishing strong. Now John MacArthur says of this, he says, to Paul the runner is a picture of the Christian, the race of the Christian life. This is a picture of maximum effort as the Christian moves towards the finish line. End quote. Paul at the beginning of chapter 3 verse 1, he warns the Philippians about false teachers and heretics, whom he calls evildoers and dogs. He is warning them not to listen uh, to their false teaching as they would lead them into error and they would go off course. Paul prior to his conversion boasted and trusted in his credentials in Judaism which we see in verse 5 and 6. He, he trusted in his ritual. Uh, so this is verse 5 and 6 of, same, of chapter 1. And so there he trusted in his, he trusted in his uh, ritual that was circumcised on the eighth day. He trusted in his race the nation of Israel. He trusted in his rank, as it says, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, and he trusted in his tradition, Hebrew of Hebrews, and he trusted in his religion, a Pharisee. And it's no different today. Many trust in their perceived idea of being a good person. Past conversion story, church attendance, could be giving or charity, or baptism, and a number of other external activities. But unless Christ has got a hold of you on the inside, you're not his. Paul worked extremely hard on external activities and efforts to attain a righteousness unto salvation. But it wasn't until Christ made Paul his own on the Damascus Road, as recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 9, this is where we see Paul's conversion. A true conversion that changed Paul's life forever. He didn't do anything to earn his salvation. He could never be a good enough person. 
And in Philippians 3.9, he explained how it happened. He says, And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And it is no different for us. We cannot earn our salvation. Our salvation is solely based on all Christ did to earn it for us. It comes through faith in Christ based on His righteousness, not our own. And this is where the dogs and evildoers come in. They are present in the larger church today. False teachers will come into the church and they'll teach other ways to attain and retain salvation. For the Philippians, the dogs were the Judaizers. They, who, they are the ones who taught a works-based salvation. In this case, they were teaching new Jewish Christians to add old covenant practices, essentially salvation by work plus works. The evildoers, on the other hand, uh, were the early Gnostics who taught you pretty much could do whatever you want and it's okay. Paul mentions this mindset in Romans 6.1 where he identifies people that claimed it was okay to continue in sin as grace will abound. Unfortunately, false teaching was prevalent in the early church and it is no less prevalent today. Therefore, we must guard ourselves against such teaching. This brings us to our passage this morning. For those taking notes, the first section we're going to look at is Paul's pursuit of Christ. And we're going to see that in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 to 14. And from there I have four points. And then secondly, we'll look at the application for all who are mature in Christ. And that's in verse 15 and 16, and there's going to be two points. So the first point is under Paul's pursuit of Christ. And this is a, his pursuit of Christ, as the first point, is based on not having attained perfection. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. Please look with me in this passage at Philippians 3.12 and 3.13. It's going to be the first part, so it's the first part of the verse of 12 so, and 13. Not that I have attained this or am already perfect. If you go down to 13, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. Here we see Paul, 30 years after his conversion, making it clear that he had not obtained perfection. Others might think he had obtained perfection, but it is not possible to obtain perfection in his life. Paul is confronting the false teaching, false teaching because two early proponents of this false teaching were claiming early forms of, per of perfectionism. As I mentioned, there were the Judaizers, as well as the early form of Gnosticism. They were vexing the early church. The, the Judaizers were early converts uh, to Christianity who tried to force believers for, uh, to conform to non -Jewish, uh, from non-Jewish backgrounds to adopt Jewish customs as a condition of salvation. Now you'll recall from the book of Acts in chapter 15 that the early church leaders such as Paul and James and Peter and Barnabas, they gathered together at the Jerusalem Council to stop this false teaching that obedience and circumcision under the custom of Moses was necessary for salvation. Now on the other hand, the other error was that which was being advanced by the early Gnostics. It was something altogether different. They held a dualistic view of reality where the world was divided into the physical realm and the spiritual realm. So salvation for them would come by obtaining perfe uh, perfection in knowledge 
which was spiritual and not physical. So conveniently, in this line of thinking, it didn't matter what they did in their bodies, as the physical world was totally separate from the spiritual world. Now we see this today, don't we? Two very different false teachings. We see legalism, on one hand, that says you need to obey certain sets of laws in order to earn your salvation, or you have what's been called antinomianism, which means against the law. And in this view, you can claim to be a Christian while your lifestyle doesn't reflect anything that one claims has happened on the inside. So for Paul, he is saying clearly he hasn't obtained a perfect knowledge, nor has he obtained a perfect moral spiritual condition. None of these things can be obtained in this present evil age. Another way to say this from verse 13 is you could say, I have not yet taken hold of it. Now this certainly smacks in the face of any kind of self-righteousness and religious conceit, doesn't it? When we survey the life of Paul in the New Testament, his life is, is extraordinary. His level of godliness and obedience seems so far out of reach. Yet here we see him providing this level of self-examination. What about you and I this morning? Are we evaluating our spiritual walk in the way that Paul would? Paul tells the Corinthians to examine themselves in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, ver uh, yeah, ter 13, verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now this is an important aspect of our Christian walk. We need to examine ourselves. We need to see if we are running the race. Are we in the race? We're going to get to verse 14 soon, which is the central theme of this passage that we're looking at today, which is, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So in review, the first point is that Paul's pursuit of Christ is in the negative. It is based on not having attained perfection. And we saw that in Philippians 13, or 3, 12a and 13a. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Brothers, I do not consider I've made it my own. Now let's look at the second point in Paul's pursuit of Christ, which is positive. It's based on pursuing that which Christ has made me his own. So we read this in verse 12b. It says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Here we see something so incredible. So amazing, so joyful. Something that should cause us reason for great comfort and joy. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ has made me his own. To quote William Hendrickson, encouraged and enabled by this very fact, namely, that it was Christ Jesus who'd laid firm hold on him, so as to possess him completely. The apostle is now pressing on in hot pursuit of the objective assigned to him. What is that thing which the Apostle Paul and we as Christians have been taken hold of? Turn with me to Romans 8, chapter 8, 28 and 29. Please. So that's Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here we so, see so clearly why Jesus has made us his own. Here we see the purpose of our salvation. His purpose was that you and I might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. So no matter what circumstances we face in life, no matter what trials or persecutions or suffering, heartaches or disappointments, we can be assured that God is using all these things for our good and His glory as we run this race. We have this promise, His promise, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It's Christ who strengthens us through all of these circumstances. So this is the heart cry of every believer. And this should be yours and mine this morning. Jesus has a firm hold on us. We are His possession. And we are pressing on. We are in hot pursuit to make it our own. Here Paul knows that he has every reason to believe he will endure. He has full assurance that he will run the race to completion in his pursuit of Christ. This gives him complete joy in the race. There is no doubt. There is no uncertainty. Jesus owns Paul. And if you're in Christ this morning, he owns you too. When Paul says press on, he means to run after or to follow after. Now this isn't passive. It's aggressive. It's, a, it's energetic. It's not a let go and let God mentality. It is fully engaged and requires effort on our part. John MacArthur says, uh, says of this, Paul's pursuit of the spiritual prize. Paul pursued the spiritual prize with all his might, straining every spiritual muscle as he ran to win. We also know from Paul that this isn't all effort and no help from God. If you look with me at Philippians chapter 2, we'll go back to chapter 2, verses um, 12 and 13. So Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here we see it is God who is at work in you. He is at work in our sanctification. His work he is at work making us more like Christ. And this work is synergistic, meaning there is activity on our part and on God's. So we can become more victorious over sinful tendencies and become more Christ-like. This is what the Christian life is. We get up every morning with the mindset that we're running a race. We're pressing on. We're pressing on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My hope is that this is you this morning. You are pressing on. You're laying aside every weight of hindrance and running the race and not looking back. Not looking to the side. Your mind is on Christ, the Savior of your soul, the author and finisher of your faith. 
We have looked at, the, uh, at two points so far in Paul's pursuit of Christ. The first point was in the negative, and it is based on not having obtained perfection. And the second point is in the positive. It was, is based on pursuing that which Christ has made him his own. And now we're going to look at the third point, and that is Paul's pursuit of Christ is achieved through forgetting and straining. So looking at the second part of verse 13, we see, uh, we see Paul saying, But the one thing I do, the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead. In Paul's pursuit of Christ, he realized that he must forget the things behind him and strive for the things ahead. First, let's look at the negative. That is forgetting what lies behind. We know that professional runners never look back because when they, if they do, they will lose speed, they will lose direction, and finally, they'll lose the race itself. Therefore, looking back while running ahead is always very dangerous. It's dangerous for the athlete, and it's certainly dangerous on a spiritual level. And Paul is making us aware of this. We may be asking at this point, what is the nature of then of forgetting? James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way, it is a kind of forgetting that occurs when we cease to let things that are in the past, when we cease to let things that are in the past overshadow the present, that lets the past be the past, both the good and the bad, and that constantly looks forward to the work that God still has for us. Earlier we looked at how Paul made a break from his past and no longer trusted in his past credentials in Judaism. You see, one's religious achievements, good works, ministry success, past sins, or whatever else, all need to be forgotten. They really need to be forgotten because they will be debilitate our walk. You can't press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus if we're living in the past. It is also just as critical that you aren't debilitated by the guilt of past sins. John MacArthur commented this way, he says, Churches are full of spiritual cripples, paralyzed by grudges, bitterness, sins, and tragedies of the past. Others try to survive in the present by reliving past successes. They must break with the past if they are to pursue the spiritual prize. End quote. Jesus said it this way in Luke 9.62, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Therefore, the clearest vision belongs to those who forget the past. Now, so far we've seen that Paul forgot the things behind him. So now let's consider how he strove for the things ahead. Here we, we may picture the Christian life like a runner straining every muscle to reach the finish line. Paul would have in mind the great events that have not yet taken place, the last day, the resurrection, and the final judgment. In Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says this to the Ephesian elders. It's in Acts 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And we know that this later in life, and recorded in 2 Timothy verse 4, 
2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, he said this as he was awaiting his execution. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. So we see Paul was focused on Jesus Christ, and he was compelling the Philippian church to do the same. They, just like us this morning, need to forget what lies behind and strain forward for what lies ahead if we are to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think at this point it's appropriate to ask yourself, are you prioritizing key activities in your week to strengthen you spiritually? Are you involved with the essential spiritual activities that strengthen yourself and others? The writer to the letter of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 provides us with a crucial reminder on how we really need each other in the church. So if you turn with me to Hebrews, please, to chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up as stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here we see how important our scheduled gatherings are, how important it is that we do not neglect meeting together, because when we do neglect meeting together, we are in fact neglecting each other. The Lord's Day gatherings, men's and women's Bible studies, as well as prayer meetings, are all means of grace that God provides in the context of the local church. These means of grace strengthen us as we press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. If you move ahead to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, let's take a look at that, please. Therefore, since we are all surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us all lay aside, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now we are, we are seeing two very different aspects of pressing on. There's says we need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings. So if we're to run this race with endurance, we must deal with things that weigh us down and sins that cling to us. One of the greatest problems for runners that runners face is weight. And this issue is infinitely more important at the spiritual level for our sanctification. Now weights are those things that hold us back. Weights aren't necessarily bad things, but they will hold us back and they will weigh us down. They could render us ineffective. What about you this morning? Are there weights holding you back? or sins that 
just seem to cling no matter how hard you feel you've tried to break free from them? Are you constantly struggling with besetting sins or sinful habits that you just can't seem to overcome? Have you sought the counsel from one of our pastors? Regarding besetting sins, R.C. Sproul has this to say, the reason we continue with these pockets of repeated sins is because we have a heartfelt desire to continue them, not because we have a heartfelt desire to stop them. I wonder how honest our commitment is to quit." End quote. I think R.C. Sproul is right. We need God to change our desires so that we have a heartfelt desire to stop and not to continue in them. Like Vanity Fair in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there are so many things that can distract us from the path Christ has put us on. There is unrestrained leisure time. There are social media apps. I think they're specifically designed to waste our time. Unlimited entertainment options and a whole world of alternative reality social media. Maybe striving for business success or the success of your children will consume our time. There are countless good and bad things that can weigh us down if we let them. Now I have to ask, are any of these things weighing you down from pursuing Christ more completely? Are you wasting your time on any of these things and neglecting the opportunities to meet so that you can stir up your brothers or sisters, uh, stir them up to love and good works? When we treasure these things more than Christ, they become very dangerous weights. Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I encourage you this morning, lay aside every weight and sin which clings. We've now looked at the first three points of Paul's pursuit of Christ. The first point was his pursuit of Christ is based not, of, not on having attained perfection. And the second is based on pursuing that which Christ has made me his own. And the third of, was, is achieved through forgetting and straining. Now we're going to look at the fourth and final point of Paul's pursuit of Christ, which is a pursuit of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We've now arrived at the, the heart of the passage that we're looking at today. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the prize that motivates Paul to win. Paul was running a race, not for a perishable prize, but for an imperishable prize with an eternal reward. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 to 27. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and 27. Do ye not know that in a race all the runners run? But only the one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete ex exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable prize, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, 
but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul was running after the prize. The faithful believers of Philippi were running after the prize. And my hope is that you are running after the prize this morning. This is the prize that motivates us daily as we persevere together, as we lay aside every weight of sin, every sin which clings in our pursuit of Christ. Now this, this is not a prize that we have now. This prize is for those who have been adopted into the family of God. It is for those whom the Holy Spirit is indwelling. And if, this is, if that is you this morning, this is what motivates you daily as you put off the deeds of the flesh and press on to grow in Christ-likeness. Paul spoke of this prize in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 this way. He says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. And in 1 Corinthians verses two, uh, chapter 2, verses 9, quoting from Isaiah 64, 4, he said it this way, But as it is written, What eye hath seen, nor ear heard, nor, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You see, the prize is Christ-likeness. That is the prize Paul is talking about, Christ-likeness. And with this great prize comes all the eternal rewards that we will receive in heaven when the upward call of God in Christ Jesus takes place for each one of us who are his. Now those whom Christ has made his own, they will be resurrected to everlasting life. But those who reject his great mercy will be resurrected to shame and everlasting contempt. We look forward to the day when we will be ushered into God's presence, glorious presence in heaven. And this is what motivates a Christian. It's not all the things of this world. It's not the things of this present evil age. No, it's to be like Christ, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. If you please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at eight, uh, verses 8 to 11. So it's Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. John says it so clearly also in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Paul was so clear, he did not have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. His righteousness was from God, through faith, and it was free. He was pressing on, he wasn't pressing on to earn something. He was pressing on for what was already his. 
Our Christian walk is a daily pressing on, pressing on toward Christ to be like Christ. We saw this earlier in verse 12 where it said, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see, our life needs to be fruitful as we press on to be like Christ. The Holy Spirit will reveal areas that are not Christ-like. Layer after layer of sinful tendencies and practices continually get exposed in our life and walk so that He can transform us. The Christian never has an attitude that they have arrived. That kind of attitude would be evidence that the Holy Spirit is not present. Thomas Watson in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, says it this way, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby the sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. This is the believer's life, inwardly humbled and visibly reformed daily. We are constantly being reformed, constantly being worked on by the Holy Spirit. He is revealing sin more and more for what it really is, while we have a clearer vision of who Christ is. And with this, we're getting a clearer understanding of our own sinfulness. The sight of sin becomes more and more visible in our own lives. And as Watson says, we are not veiled over with ignorance and self-love. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, speaking to both the Jewish and Gentile believers, put it this way, and we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul is reminding them that the glory of God is no longer veiled as it was with Moses. We can gaze upon the glory of the Lord as Christians because it is no longer veiled. We gaze upon the glory of the Lord in the mirror of the gospel. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, actively working because of our union with Christ. If you're a believer here today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know how the Holy Spirit is working in your life, convicting and reproving sin. The Holy Spirit is constantly at work in the believer's life. We no longer have a heart of stone. We have a heart of flesh. That is where the Holy Spirit is at work. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace, says it this way, A heart of stone is a figurative expression for a hard heart, one that is insensible to the things of God and unable to receive any impressions of divine truth. The heart of flesh represents a soft and tender heart, one that is able and willing to receive and act upon the truths of God's word. Matthew Henry says of this verse, Renewed grace works as a great change in the soul, as the turning of dead stones into living flesh. A person with a heart of flesh responds to the gospel, but a person with a heart of stone doesn't. They are indifferent to the gospel. They may enjoy many things that could be labeled Christian, like coming to church on Sundays, fellowshipping, even hearing and reading God's word, but the heart is that of stone and they do not change. They aren't thinking about pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. No, they're thinking about this life and everything that it has to offer. They are caught up in the pleasures of this life. 
For everyone that has a heart of flesh, we know that wasn't always the case. It was the work of the Holy Spirit that causes a person to be born again. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit that turns a heart of stone into flesh. They now have changed desires and the course and direction of their life has been changed forever. Now so far we've looked at Paul's pursuit of Christ and we've considered four points in his lifelong pursuit. The first one was based on not having obtained perfection. The second is based on pursuing that which Christ has made him his own. And the third was it is achieved through forgetting and straining. And the fourth, it is a pursuit of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this brings us to our final point of this message. For those taking notes, the second section we're looking at is the application for all who are mature in Christ. And this is in verse 15 and 16. There are two points to this section. First is from verse 15, where it says, Let them think the same way about pursuing Christ. And the second from verse 16, let them live up to the standard already achieved. Now we read in verse 15, it said, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So here we see that Paul is not in this spiritual race alone. We are all in this race together and we need each other immensely. This is not an earthly race with a perishable prize. No, not at all. This is a, a heavenly race with an imperishable prize. And we are together pressing on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So together we think like Paul. We recognize our need for spiritual maturity. Paul has given us the characteristics that accompany Christian conduct. Characteristics he has personally applied himself. We have looked at the importance that Paul places on forgetting what lies behind and, and straining for what lies ahead and pressing on toward the goal for the prize every day. In this verse, we now see in this verse we now see Paul turn directly to his readers and admonishing them to be like-minded. We see here that we need to continually think this way. We must continually focus our efforts on the prize of Christ-likeness. We must continually seek the Holy Spirit's work of transformation and sanctification in our lives. We need to have the mind of Christ. Consider for a moment uh, Paul's description of this in Philippians chapter 2 verses 2 to 5. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, we need to have the same attitude as Christ. We need to view all of life through his lens, the lens of the, from the Lord's perspective. And if we think this way, our thoughts and behaviors will be more like Christ. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, if you don't mind turning there. So it's Colossians chapter 3, 16 and 17. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is why the Lord's Day gatherings, Bible studies, prayer meetings, which are all means of grace pro provided in the context of the local church, are so necessary to strengthen us. We looked at Paul's prayer from Philippians earlier, and his desire was that our love would abound more and more. You see, it's not loving when we neglect to meet together, because we need every opportunity to, available to encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. So in conclusion, let's, let's now go back to Philippians 3 and look at the last verse of today's passage, which is verse 16, which concludes the last point, the application for all who are mature in Christ. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we've attained. Here we see Paul provides one final thought for the passage that we've looked at today. Here we're told to hold true to what we've attained. Hold true could also be as keep living or using the metaphor of the runner, we are to line up or follow in line. We are to not go off course. We must keep up on the spiritual path that we're on. If, if we are to hold true to what we've obtained, it isn't something that can be done alone. And it's certainly not something that we do once a week. We need to be standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is something we do together, unified around the gospel, striving side by side if we are to press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Our priorities in life need to be centered around this goal, the eternal non-perishing goal, not the temporal perishing goal that we are to have for other things. As we draw near to the end of our time this morning, please consider the words of the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. May his words be an encouragement to all that are pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus this morning. His quote, this marriage feast will be the bringing of the people of God into the closest and happiest union with Christ their Lord in glory. Even now the Lord Jesus Christ is no stranger to some of us and we are no strangers to him. Yet a day will come when we will see him face to face and we will know him with a clearer and fuller knowledge than is possible for us today. That feast will be like most other marriage feasts, the fulfillment of long expectation. We do not know the longings of the heart of Christ for that day of glory. For this he lived and for this he died. Now Jonathan Edwards started his 70 lifelong resolutions when fall ended in winter of 1722 and he completed his last resolution in August of 1723. On July 8th of 1723, Jonathan Edwards penned this resolution. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just as I can, think I shall wish I had done, supposed I live to an old age. Jonathan Edwards lived 35 years after that resolution and went to be with the Lord at age 54. I trust this morning's message has encouraged you, spurred you on as we together forget what lies behind and strain forward for what lies ahead in this, pressing year, in this coming year. 
pressing on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now if this message this morning has reached your ears as a stranger to Christ, if you've not been running this race, if Jesus has not yet made you his own, if you have not turned from sin and self and embraced Christ, I implore you to repent and believe the gospel. It is good news and it will save your soul. And on that final day, you will not be resurrected to shame and everlasting contempt. Instead, you'll be resurrected to everlasting life. I encourage you to run to Christ. Cling to Christ as this world and everything in it is perishing. I encourage you to join the race. Join the race that only Christ can enter you in. And let's, let's press on together toward the goal, the prize, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us pray.